One of my favorite things is creating great content for you, my listeners. But everyone's got a butt, right? It costs money to keep the process flowing. There's sound, recording, and editing gear. There's the cost of platforms that syndicate the program. And, well, a whole lot of time goes into seeking out good stories and topics. So here's my ask. If you like what you're hearing on You Don't Say, help me keep things going by showing your support with a donation. Any amount is appreciated. You can donate to me by visiting youdontsay.net and clicking the Venmo or PayPal button on the homepage or go directly to Venmo or PayPal where my handle is at Drew Zag. That's at D-R-E-W-Z-A-G. Thanks for your consideration and hope you enjoy the episode. Direct Mail. To a business owner, that only brings to mind big dollar signs and little return. Well, there's a better way to reach, stay in front of, and engage your customers, prospects, and cohorts. Constant contact, folks. Yep, I've used them for years for my businesses, and it works. And for pennies per contact as compared to direct mail. Subscriptions start at around 20 bucks a month. Constant Contact provides powerful email tools that include a library of awesome design templates, list management and reporting, event management, polls, and more. So, if you want to stay in front of your audience, Constant Contact has everything you need, and I'll make it easy for you. Simply go to constantcontact.com forward slash you don't say to start your free trial account today. Let's do a little math. Say you decide to save a few bucks by developing your branding by yourself because hiring a pro? Well, that costs money. Okay, so you need a brand identity, story, and a website, the basics. Doing that would take about 30 hours if you got those kind of skills and know what you're doing. Now, how much is an hour of your time worth? Let's say $100. So the cost of your homemade branding is three grand. Nice. Who needs to hire someone for this stuff, right? Easy peasy. But here's the thing. Every hour you spend ironing out your message, conceiving the brand identity, then designing, building, and organizing the website, double that. Why? Because every hour you spend on it is an hour taken away from developing new and supporting existing clients. So now you got a $6,000 tab on your desk. And that's only if existing clients don't get a call back when they need you because you're head down trying to write copy when you're not really a copywriter. Maybe you even upset or lose a client along the way. So there's that cost too. And at the end of it, if you're not a branding pro, who knows if anything you've done is going to connect with the people you're trying to engage with. Odds are it won't and you have to go back to square one because things aren't happening. The phone is quiet. People aren't talking about your business except maybe to say to each other under their breath, have you seen that guy's website? Now that money-saving self-service branding effort might be costing you tens of thousands of dollars. So don't throw away all your valuable time, hard-earned money, and business. Just do it right from the get-go and hire a pro who brings decades of experience to the game. Someone who will exceed your expectations while helping you engage with prospects, develop affinity with current clients, and grow your business and brand reputation. Give Drew Zagorski of Left Brain, Right Brain Marketing a call today at 503-961-3640. Four seven or connect online at lbrbm.com. Again, that's 503-961-3647, and the website is lbrbm.com. But wait, there's more. For a limited time, I'm offering crazy pricing on website projects. So go to lbrbm.com forward slash crazy for details about an insane deal to get you that new or refreshed website. But act now, because I'm considering therapy. The right pro from the get-go, left brain, right brain marketing. Call me today. This is 
Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdontsay.net and share with family, friends, and everyone else you know. As a kid growing up in Chicago in the early 70s, we had our choice of pro sports teams to follow. Every once in a while, I had an opportunity to go to a Bulls game. This was pre-Jordan, mind you, so the stadium was rarely close to full house. You could buy your tickets, then sit wherever, almost courtside most of the time. That said, they were never much to look at back then. They were pretty pitiful. When Jordan came, I also had opportunities to go to games, but then it was a case of having to know someone to get a ticket. It was phenomenal to watch that guy perform live. Words just can't do it justice. And it was more spectacular than watching it on TV, regardless of replays and close-ups. Then there were the Blackhawks, always an exciting event, and the Hawks always had sellout crowds. The stadium literally shook from the fans going crazy. In the upper deck, you'd occasionally have a flash in your mind that the whole thing was going to come down from the rock and atmosphere. But you know what? The early to mid-70s Hawks weren't much either. In the 80s and 90s, they had some runs, and not much long after that, I left Chicago. So the more recent glory days were still to come. But the Hawks games were always fun, whether or not they were a great team. We also had the Chicago Sting back in the late 70s and early 80s. This was before soccer became the thing it is today. Almost no attention was ever given to the team until 1981 when they made it to the championship. I'd never even been to a pro soccer game at that point. To illustrate my point about the popularity of the sport, that championship game in 81 was played at Comiskey Park, just blocks from where I lived. I heard on the radio that after the first half, they were throwing the gates open for whoever wanted to come in. That's right, a championship game, live, for free. That's how sparse the crowd was. My cousin Nancy, God rest her beautiful soul, was living with us at the time, and I told her about it and that we should get in her car and go, try to beat the crowd. We did. No crowd really to beat. The ballpark's upper deck was empty and the lower deck was maybe half full. Still, it was an exciting game, even though I didn't know a damn thing about what was going on on the field. Well, the sting won and the crowd ran onto the field, Nancy and I included. I had a pocket knife on me and cut a piece of the net, and I still have that relic in a drawer somewhere. The sting lasted until the mid-80s, and I think that today I heard they resurrected the team name for an indoor soccer league team, the Bears. From the mid-60s, they were pretty awful up to Ditka and the Super Bowl shuffle years, but still, they always seemed to have at least one or two generational talents on a team. Plus, we could watch them every Sunday on TV. I was able to see Dick Buckus play his last couple years. He was well past his prime, but still a beast. Plus, my older siblings would burnish his image with their stories of his exploits. He captured my imagination, so did the Bears. And there was also the legends of Papa Bear, Nagurski, Piccolo, and Sayers. I'm just for Klemp just thinking about those two. The awesome defenses they put on the field, Ditka before he was the coach, and then that kid from Jackson State who was the foundation of the team's turnaround. In this fan's opinion, Walter Payton and Dick Buckus are the two greatest players ever to play the game. So the Bears, with their rich history and rise and fall during my lifetime, have always owned a piece of my sports fan's heart. The Cubs? Nay, nay, I say. I grew up on the south side, just blocks from Comiskey, as I mentioned earlier. So genetically, I'm a White Sox fan. Always have been, always will be. Honestly, the couple of times that the north side team made the playoffs, I told myself, okay, the Sox aren't there, so I'll root for the Chicago team. But after that first pitch, I'd find myself rooting against them, heavily. So my Sox, being that close, close enough to see the Friday night fireworks and hear the roar of the crowd on a night when the winds were just right, I was all in. When they'd hit a homer and that scoreboard would explode, our house would rattle just a little. Like the Bears, the Sox had some relative success throughout their history. But before divisional play, they had the evil empire, the Yankees to try and overcome, and the Red Sox, who usually put up a championship contending team. 
But the lore around the team was something that caught me early. Our school gave away tickets for perfect attendance. I would try as hard as I could to score those every year. That's about the only thing that motivated me in school back then. Then came 1977 and the Southside Hitmen. Gamble with 31 homers. Zisk with 30. Soderholm knocked 25. Lemonhead 19. And Lamar Johnson and Jim Spencer platooned at first base and bashed out 36 homers between them. As a team, they knocked out almost 200 homers and were in the heat of the pennant race until late in the season. They even printed up playoff tickets, if memory serves. Ultimately, they fell short, but they cemented me as a lifelong Sox fan. So baseball and football were the main loves in my sports life. They still are. As a kid, when we'd play football, baseball, or in our neighborhood, something called swift or fast pitch, which was played one-on-one or two-on-two in a concrete lot against a brick wall with a strike zone painted on it, we'd narrate the games, playing the role of the local heroes. Now batting, the designated hitter, Richie Zisk! Or lining up for a game of neighborhood tackle, imagining in your mind that you're Butkus, then busting through the line to hammer the other team's quarterback to the ground with a sack. On the way home, you'd imagine yourself being inducted in the Baseball or Football Hall of Fame, having spent your entire career with the Sox or Bears, or who knows, maybe both, and getting into both cathedrals of their respective sport. Okay, childhood fantasies. You knew you'd never make it in. You just didn't have that type of generational talent. But then, maybe, someday, there'd be a way to make it into the Hall of Fame. For several years, I used Go to My PC. I thought it was pretty good, aside from dealing with the size of the screen when I tapped in using a laptop or a tablet. And then there was that delayed reaction thing once in a while, usually when I needed to have a fast connection most. Sure, I was untethered from the desktop, but it was kind of like being Mr. Magoo with a 500-pound weight on my back. Then I heard an ad for remote PC and gave it a try. What a difference it made in working remotely. At last, I'm truly untethered with lightning-fast connections and responsiveness and a reasonable screen size, even on a smaller tablet. Not only that, but the cost effectiveness of a remote PC is off the hook. I was paying about $20 a month for that other service and get this. Remote PC plans begin at about $20 a year for a single user. So if you're looking for a better, faster way to stay connected to your desktop while you're out in the field, you need to get remote PC today. There's no remote chance you're ever going to go back to those other services if you do. And better yet, when you go to youdontsay.net and click on the remote PC ad on the home page or episode page, you'll get 50% off your first year subscription. That's right, 50% off your first year. So go to youdontsay.net and click on that ad today. It's always been a daydream to visit both halls. Well, the dream came true this past spring. My wife and I made the trip, God bless her, which started with a visit to our oldest kid out in Brooklyn. Part of that trip included a visit to the Ground Zero Memorial, which I'll share in an upcoming episode. After that, we rented a car and drove from New York to Cooperstown and then on to Canton. The drive to Cooperstown was beautiful. For the most part, you're driving through the country. The first half of the four-hour drive is through the Catskills, so that was just a ride full of lush scenery. And Cooperstown is a beautiful postcard-sized village in the middle of the rolling hills and countryside. It's almost like driving into Mayberry from the old Andy Griffith show. Cooperstown, as the legend goes, is the place where Abner Doubleday and a cow pasture there in 1839 invented the game of baseball, hence the location of the hall. There's a small, really cool old-school baseball field a couple blocks from the hall named Doubleday Field in his honor. 
The look of the village, aside from the paved streets and some of the modern amenities, probably hasn't changed much over the years. Of course, on the outskirts, there's a couple of hotels now for tourists and some other grounds. They've managed to keep the history of the place around and not succumb to over-commercialization. That's part of the magic of the place. You feel like you step back in time in a lot of ways. And if you're a baseball junkie like I am, you feel that magic without ever stepping into the hall itself. And that Mayberry thing? Let me tell you something. The people of Cooperstown were fantastic and welcoming. A little sidetrack here. We had a bit of car trouble with our rental. An old fella saw we had the hood up. He stepped up and said he works on cars and what's the problem? The guy, he's probably in his 70s, mind you, got down on the ground and got under the car to check things out to see if he could help. We ended up having to abandon the car in the gas station parking lot where the rental car company would come and pick it up. So now we're without a car. Another lady offered us a ride to our hotel, which was a couple of miles outside the village. The next day, our replacement car wasn't delivered yet, so we were looking at walking back to the hotel. There's a trolley bus that goes to a remote parking lot that picked us up. The lady who drives it offered to drive us down the road. Then get this, when she dropped us off, she gave us her home phone number and said she wasn't working the next day. So if we were still without the replacement car, we should give her a call and she'd drive us to the Albany airport, which was about an hour and a half away to pick up a replacement car. That made the visit even better. The Baseball Hall of Fame, of course, is the centerpiece of Cooperstown, but it's not a huge, conspicuous building as you might imagine it to be. It almost looks like a school, town hall, or library. It's a pretty welcoming facade, and as we approach it, honestly, I started to get goosebumps. As you step inside, there's three life-size statues, Garrick, Jackie Robinson, and Clemente. That's when the fur clamped hit. Garrick and Clemente are two of my all-time favorites, and of course, no end to the respect for Robinson. As you pass through the ticket booth, you round the corner and you're right in the Hall of Fame gallery. It was as if I was walking on hallowed ground. I looked at every plaque in the place. The museum's floor plan guides you through the years of the game and presents it through the stories of the individual players, broadcasters, and others who had an impact on the game. So the storytelling is very personal in a lot of ways and very relatable. Simply put, it engages you as if these folks were telling you their stories themselves. One of the things I was really happy to see and very interested in was that there was also a focus given to the Negro Leagues and the All-American Girls League from the 40s and 50s. I've been listening to a podcast called Black Diamonds produced by the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Sirius XM, which offers a ton of great baseball history. I was curious to see how some of that was presented. Might have to make a trip to that museum someday. Anyway, I'll drop a link to the podcast in the episode notes. If you're a baseball fan, you're going to love it. My travel book was The Last Hero, A Life of Henry Aaron by Howard Bryant. I'll put a link to that in the episode notes, too. Aaron's one of my all-time favorites, even though I only got to see him play on TV and near the end of his career. To me, he was all class and one of the best players to put on a uniform, and in my opinion, the real home run king. So anyway, I was looking forward to seeing the Aaron artifacts. They didn't disappoint. I think I stood for several minutes in front of the uniform he wore when he broke the Babe's home run record, just taking it in and going back in time, watching him round the bases and all those fans who jumped on the field wanting to get close to him. Again, there was that magic. And of course, being a White Sox fan, I was thrilled at how much memorabilia there was from my hometown team in the museum. Even those crazy softball unis with the shorts from the late 70s, who'd have thunk those would be in the Hall of Fame? There was Louis Aparicio's jersey, a jersey from 1917, and one of the pinwheels from that exploding scoreboard. 
They even had Harry Carey's glasses. You might know that name from his years with the Cubs, but I always think of him from his days before that when he was a White Sox broadcaster alongside Jimmy Pearsall. But it wasn't just the Sox stuff. It was all of it. All of the teams, Grantland Rice's typewriter, things from different eras, Stan Musial's whole locker. There was even a baseball art exhibit, which I really enjoyed. Of course, the famous Rockwell painting, The Umpires Looking to the Skies as Raindrops Fall, was in there, as was a fun sculpture of Casey Stengel in a Mets uniform, and a stylized baseball card of Nellie Fox as, what else, a fox. I was totally immersed. There was also a 17-minute film in the theater that was outstanding. I gotta admit, it got me choked up more than once. As we were walking out, I wasn't the only one. Several folks were talking about how it choked them up, too. The film was really well done, and like the museum itself, it was telling the story of baseball through the eyes of the players who made it into the hall. My favorite bit was from Dennis Eckersley, who made it in mostly on the merits of the part of his career when he went from starting pitcher to reliever. He talked about how lucky he was to have played the game, and in particular, to have been involved in one of the greatest moments of it. So he went on to talk about the World Series game from 1988, in which his Oakland A's were facing the L.A. Dodgers. He came in to relieve in Game 1. Kirk Gibson of the Dodgers was called on to pinch hit. The guy was injured, badly. He literally hobbled up to the plate. Eckersley winds up, delivers, and in the words of Hall of Fame announcer Vin Scully, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. You guessed it. Gibson laces a one-handed, off-balance, game-winning walk-off homer. So they cut back from that footage to Eck, and he's laughing, and he says... That was one of the greatest moments in baseball history, and I got to be a part of it. Not my best night, though. I love that comment and thought it showed so much class and humility. Anyway, a great film full of wonderful memories like that. Like that line from The Field of Dreams, the memories were so thick I had to brush them away. But I didn't want to brush them away. I wanted to let them wash over me. I wanted to swim in them. The more, the better. It made me love the game even more than I do. And to be honest, I think with all that's been going on in our world, it was kind of healing, like a field trip back to a different time. And then from an interior and lighting design perspective, the baseball hall is just a beautiful place and very well laid out. The design delivers a warm feeling all throughout the whole place. So it was hard to pull myself away, but we had the next leg of our trip, Canton, Ohio, and the Football Hall of Fame. For the most part, the drive from Cooperstown to Canton was pretty scenic as well. In the last couple of hours, though, you get into a more densely populated region and all that comes with it. So the football hall. Right off the bat, pun intended, I guess, the location is a complete opposite of the baseball hall. It's nestled alongside a super busy highway. The exterior is, for football fans, pretty iconic, that half football dome. There's a huge video board sign out front, which kind of makes you think of a mega car dealership or casino, but maybe that's just me. The museum itself is dwarfed by the ginormous stadium that sits behind it where they play the Hall of Fame game. So you get a pretty commercial vibe. Got to fill those seats, right? So, okay, I'm interested in what's inside more than the exterior, so I go in. The feel of the place is pretty cold right away. Then there's the view through the glass front doors that's a super busy highway. The layout of the place is not very inviting or easy to navigate either. The actual Hall of Fame gallery of busts is on the second floor, so you walk through all the exhibits on the first floor, and pretty quickly you get a different vibe in terms of how things are presented. 
Sure, there's player artifacts, but the gist of the story that's being told wasn't much about individual players and their careers, but more about the history of the league, more specifically like a corporate history. It seemed to me that there were fewer artifacts and memorabilia than in the baseball hall. It seemed to me there were more photos of players, stadiums, and games with a paragraph about what was in the photo versus seeing, for example, the bat that Ty Cobb used with that little blurb alongside it. It felt pretty impersonal, to be honest. Then there were two short films on offer. One was titled The Super Bowl. Cool, I thought. A history of the big game. That should be fun. Turned out it was a recap of the 2020-2021 postseason, so it lost me almost immediately. The other film was titled A Game for Life. Okay, that sounded more like what the baseball hall offered. The theater of A Game for Life was kind of cool. It was set up like a vintage locker room. The problem is you're sitting on a bench with no back, a little uncomfortable for old bones. The film itself was hosted by a virtual Joe Namath, and the gist of it was geared more toward 10-year-olds. It featured clips of Hall of Famers delivering inspirational sound bites about perseverance and things like that, more than their own stories inside the game. I wanted to walk out after about the first five minutes of both films, so not great. Now on to the Hall of Fame gallery, where the busts are. The busts were fun to look at for sure, but a huge difference here is that each bust was presented only with the players or executives' name and their years of service and the teams they were with. There was no history presented, nothing that showed career sacks, yards gained, catches, TDs, field goals made, nothing. Pretty impersonal from that perspective. Now here's an interesting thing that happened as I walked through the gallery. A docent was talking with two people. He asked them what they noticed about the three busts they were standing in front of. So I stepped over and listened in. That one in the middle is pretty black, while the others had the bronze polish still on them. That's right, says the docent. He points out that the dark bust was that of O.J. Simpson. So now I'm really paying attention. I gotta admit, I was pretty surprised they would even still have his bust in there, considering. I mean, there are a lot of guys who did things that were out of bounds, but more on that in a bit. So O.J.'s bust is still there. That's interesting, and I don't quite know what to make of it. Anyway, the docent said that during the murder trial, the bust was stolen. It was missing for only a few days, but because it was out in the weather, then went through the fingerprint dusting and so on as the police processed it as a piece of evidence, it was already beyond the point of restoration. So it'll always be dark. Then I couldn't resist chiming in, well, that's appropriate, and everyone kind of smiled. Then I couldn't resist going one further, and I asked if the thieves had a book in the gift shop entitled If We Did It. That got some laughs. So why is it still there? There's a rule that stipulates that once you're in, you're in and can't be removed. Peter King, a sports writer and football Hall of Fame voter, said in an interview about it that the writers only vote on what happens between the lines on the field, not what happens off the field. Okay, so this is where I think more detail needs to be presented. Tell the whole story. Keep them in fine, but put it all there for everyone to know. So now as I'm walking out of the Football Hall of Fame, I got to be honest, I'm kind of disappointed. I mean, I still love football, always will, but that hall was a big fumble in my opinion. When I talked with my brother about the trip, I said to him that I absolutely wanted to go back to the baseball hall and maybe spend a couple of days just reading through everything and taking it all in in a deeper dive into those magical waters. And then going for an induction ceremony would be a blast too. That bus driver lady I mentioned earlier said that's a great time to be there. She said the place is loaded with Hall of Famers, just walking the streets and all very approachable and willing to take a picture with you or sign an autograph. I told my wife that would be a great gig for my golden years, to live in Cooperstown and be a docent at the museum. That'd be a dream job. Canton, not so much. 
The baseball hall is like witnessing a walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the ninth of Game 7 of the World Series versus seeing a team go three and out. Anyway, I told my brother to think of it like this. Cooperstown and the Baseball Hall of Fame is like going to a barbecue party with friends and family that you've not seen in a while, but you love being with. Nothing but great memories, fun stories, and just a great feeling all around. Those thick memories again. You go there and you can't wait to go back to the next reunion. The place is kind of like baseball's love letter to the fans. The football hall was like sitting through a corporate PowerPoint about how this is the greatest business ever and everyone works hard and plays hard and yada, 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 and you just want to walk out about halfway through. Look, I realize not everyone feels the same if they've been to both. That's just my take. Now, before I wrap up the OJ thing, you can probably tell I'm nostalgic about baseball and football, too. I wouldn't have gone to visit these museums if I wasn't, but I'm not naive. Both halls have a few people in them of varying degrees of infamy. I just believe that OJ is about the most extreme case of that. My take is that he did it, but that's just me again. To me, that's past the line, way past it. In fact, it blows it up. Some of these players led anything but exemplary lives. And let's not discount the racism that existed in both games and in many ways still does. I believe there's also a good bit of hypocrisy in both halls. I'll use baseball as an example. It's no secret that a lot of players in baseball have bet on the game, used performance-enhancing drugs well before steroids, and so on. I think that being the case, a guy like Pete Rose should be in the hall. Today, commercial sports is a huge betting industry. Football allows it in the stadium. And the other day, as I was watching a baseball game, at the bottom of the screen in the ticker, they're showing betting odds. So it's crazy that Pete's locked out. And I think it's just a matter of time until guys like Bonds and Clemens get in via the old-timers committee, regardless of how much they juiced. Pete needs to be there, too. I agree with Peter King that players that get in need to be selected based on what they did while playing the game, not off the field. But yeah, I think there's a line that you can't go past an OJ and anyone else who beats or intentionally harms their partners or commits a violent or hate crime against someone, in my opinion, has crossed it. So that's my take. I wouldn't let them in. And if they're in and they're found guilty of those things, I would take them out. So that's my take. The bottom line is this. If you're thinking of visiting both but can only choose one, the National Baseball Hall of Fame simply hits it out of the park. Just go. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to You Don't Say wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your family and friends. I welcome your feedback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories and on LinkedIn at Drew Zagorski. And that's me. I'm Drew Zagorski. Thanks for listening to You Don't Say. Peace. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.